I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn me to the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 8 is where I want to direct your attention. And I stood up here, and I just realized I never put my microphone on. So, um, Mark, would you bring it to me? Could you bring me that? I'm sorry. What was I thinking? I don't know what I was thinking. Hosea chapter 8 is where I want to direct your attention. And um, this morning, we are talking about a prophet who is life uh, at times must have felt like all hell was breaking loose against him and uh, remain faithful to God Thank you. and calls us to do the same. Now, Hosea chapter 8, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, you should take one from the pews. We'll give you one if you don't have one. Now, how unprofessional. <laughs> Terrible. All right, I'm going to start reading Hosea chapter. In a minute. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Had to do my hair this morning. Have to do this. It's terrible. All right, Hosea chapter 8, verse 1. <laughs> Put the trumpet to your lips. An eagle is over the house of the Lord. Because the people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my law. Israel cries out to me, Our God, we acknowledge you, but Israel has rejected what is good. An enemy will pursue him. They set up kings without my consent. They choose princes without my approval. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. Samaria, throw out your calf idol. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of purity? They are from Israel. This calf a metal worker has made, it is not God. It will be broken in pieces, that calf of Samaria. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stalk has no head. It will produce no flower. Were it to yield grain, foreigners would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now she is among the nations like something no one wants, for they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has sold herself to lovers. Although they have sold themselves among the nations, I will now gather them together. They will begin to waste away under the oppression of the mighty king. Though Ephraim built many altars for sin offerings, these have become altars for sinning. I wrote for them the many things of my law, but they regarded them as something foreign. Though they offer sacrifices as gifts to me, and though they eat the meat, the Lord is not pleased with them. Now he will remember their wickedness and punish their sins. They will return to Egypt. Israel has forgotten their maker and built palaces. Judah has fortified many towns, but I will send fire on their cities, and that that will consume their fortresses. Uh, Many of you uh, remember the author Jared Wilson, who visited us last fall. Uh, This week online, he he drew attention to a quote from the Sydney Writers' Festival, the Sydney Australia Writers' Festival. There's a man in Sydney, Australia. His name is Hugh McKay, and uh, I don't know much about him, but he's quite well known in Australia. He's a sociologist, a psychologist, a a commentator. He's written a number of best-selling books in Australia. And uh, not too long ago, Hugh McKay, ventured into theology and this is what he said Jesus never told anyone what to believe he only spoke about how we are to treat one another 
It's short. Let, let me repeat it here. He said, Jesus never told anyone what to believe. He only spoke about how we were to treat one another. Now, how does that sound to you, maybe? I wanted to think about that for a minute. Um, some of you already, your nose is twitching a little bit, and you're thinking about that saying. There's, there's, for a minute, though, I want, to, I want you to think with me about why the Sydney Writers Festival would think that this line would be worth broadcasting and thinking about. Why, why would someone want you to think about this sentence? Well, uh, for one thing, it's an appeal to Jesus. Um, those who would describe themselves as not followers of Christ love to quote Jesus or talk about Jesus when they're arguing with Christians. Now, if you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Christ, uh, you're, I want you to know you're very welcome here in our church. You're welcome to come and, and worship with us as we gather. I'm really happy to have And I also want you to know that we are not, I I know that Christians are not above this. I have been on Facebook enough that you find Christians who, who they find one quote from Charles Darwin or one quote from Carl Sagan or one quote from uh, Christopher Hitchens that is supposed to undo atheism and agnosticism all around the world. And we post it on Facebook or put it in movies and, and, and it's supposed to end and all doubt about the existence of God and the supremacy of Jesus Christ, there's a one phrase that's going to do it. Well, um, Christians are guilty of that. I, I understand that. Non-Christians do the same thing sometimes when they quote the Bible to us. Um, so a Christian pastor or a church will issue a statement about something, and, and here will be response. Didn't Jesus say, judge not, that you be not judged? And every pastor says, oh, I never thought of that. I didn't even see that verse in the Bible. That's amazing. It changes everything. No, that's not what happens at all. But uh, uh, he appeals to Jesus. So Hugh McKay, uh, we, uh, he's the ultimate authority, right? So Jesus didn't, never told anyone what to believe, he says. Now, second, this, this line, I think Jesus never told anyone to believe. He only told us how to treat one another. This line is popular because it doesn't really place any demands on your intellect or your will or your own personal behavior. In fact, the only thing it has to do with is how you treat other people. And since we're talking about Jesus here, it must mean that you treat everybody with kindness and you affirm and tolerate and forgive and love because that's the only thing that Jesus ever did was he spoke kindly with tolerance, affirming and loving and forgiving giving. Hmm. There's a lot attractive to people about what Hugh McKay said. Uh, the Sydney Writers Festival thought so. That's only got one problem. Only one problem is it's completely wrong. Jesus told people what to believe all the time. He, you could make lists and lists and lists of the things that Jesus told uh, uh, people to believe. Jared Wilson pointed to John 14.1. Believe in God, believe also in me. Well, that's a pretty clear statement. Hmm. But I actually, I think this line from Hugh McKay mirrors in our own culture a problem that we see in this chapter of Hosea that I just read. Remember that Hosea was a prophet to Israel. He lived about 2,700 years ago. Uh, the nation that Moses led out of Egypt into the promised land, uh, they were ruled by judges. They were ruled by a couple of kings. And then after Solomon ruled, that one nation split into two, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And Israel in the north was the wealthier nation, the more powerful nation. Uh, but they, well, and they were a religious nation. Oh, they were very, very, very religious. 
But their religion was a mixture of some of the right names and some of the right places and some of the right things put together with a host of other practices they picked up from the nations around them. And that mixture was just an abomination to God. So he sends Hosea the prophet. This situation reminds me a little bit of how Christianity and our culture are woven together. We have, in God we trust, written on our money. We pray publicly. We have courts who describe us, we have civil religion. Billy Graham, over and over again, is one of the most admired men in the country. Our political leaders court the evangelical vote and they speak in churches. This faith, though, is, it's, it's mixed, isn't it? It's, it's somewhat hollow. It's a veneer. This can happen sometimes in... in in generations. So grandma and grandpa know the gospel. They love the gospel. Mom and dad know the gospel and go to church most of the time. Grandkids, well, it's nice to sing those good songs about Jesus. And they've been to VBS a few times. But it's not really that important. That, that, that pattern that happens. Hollow faith. Faith that's a facade. What we find in the book of Hosea in chapter 8 are pointers, things, pointers that show us what it looks like when faith has been hollowed out, when it becomes just a facade, when it's so mixed that it's not really real, and under those circumstances it becomes dangerous. Now, this morning I want to look at a couple of those pointers, two signs in the text that point to faith as a facade, but, but what I want to do beforehand, before I do that, is I want to show you why I think that's the point of Hosea chapter 8, why this text it leads us to, to talk about this topic this morning. Remember that the first three chapters of the book of Hosea tell a story. It's Hosea's story. It's a story of how Hosea the prophet, under God's command, married a woman who would become unfaithful to him, who would be unfaithful. She was an unfaithful woman when he married her. And they had three children together. And chapters 4 through 7, the prophet speaks to the nation and, and he kind of weaves in the names of his children into the nation into his sermon to describe the nation's sin so uh, and and there's patterns of three all the way through those chapters chapters four through seven there's three sins there's three sinful cities there's three calls to repent just uh, uh sermons in threes and then what happens in chapters eight through fourteen is we have alternating soliloquies God's going to speak in chapter 8. I don't know if you know this. Notice this in verse 2. Israel cries out to me, our God, we acknowledge you. God is speaking here. And then in chapter 9, Hosea is going to speak, and then God will speak, and Hosea will speak, alternating soliloquies. Interesting. That too seems to be built off of Hosea's story in chapters 1 through 3. Do you remember Hosea chapter 1 is on the third person about what God told the prophet Hosea to do. Chapter 3 is about uh, uh, Hosea speaks for himself in the first person. He says, I went and found my wife again. Hosea and God both know what it's like to be in covenant with an unfaithful spouse. Hosea with Gomer, God with the Israelites. And from these, the rest of these chapters in the Bible, they're both going to take turns speaking about what that is like and how uh, disastrous that is. Now, since uh, Hosea is a, is a prophet, um, it, it would not surprise you that the, the beginning of the prophets uh, would be judgment. Verse 1, put the trumpet to your lips, an eagle is over the house of the Lord. 
Put the trumpet to your lips in a, in a, a war cry. Disaster's coming. Blow the signal. Disaster's coming to us because God is coming to judge. And an eagle is over the house of the Lord. Maybe your text says a, a vulture. Does your text say a vulture? It might. We're, we're not too sure about the Hebrew words between eagle and vulture. They seem similar. If he's talking about eagle, if eagle is the right translation, I wonder if Hosea doesn't have Deuteronomy in mind. I wrote a verse down on your note sheet if you want to follow along. Deuteronomy 28:49. Deuteronomy is condemning. When you break the covenant, this is what's going to happen to you. Look what it says. The Lord will bring a nation against you from very far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a fierce-looking nation, without respect for the old or pity for the young. Here's the warning. There's an eagle that's coming, a foreign nation. It's going to swoop down on you, and you're going to be dead. Eagle. Maybe, though, it means vulture. Well, what does it mean if a vulture is standing on your house, too? (laughs) You're not healthy under those circumstances, either. Vultures come to eat. Either way, judgment. Verse 2, though, the people, they, they object. They say, oh, God, though, we acknowledge you. We know you. There's that word, acknowledge. We've seen that all the way through. And every chapter in the book of Hosea, this word appears. It, it means to know God, to know facts about him, and to respond appropriately. To, to know how great he is because you can state facts about him, but also then to revere him, to respond appropriately in your mind and heart to that knowledge that you have of him. And they say to God, we, we know you. We... The, the problem is, though, that they actually don't. And the whole rest of the, the chapter here is going to argue that they don't really know God. They worship They know God's name, and they worship. They worship a lot. There's sacrifices everywhere. There's altars all over. But their devotion to God is so mixed with loyalties and practices and devotion to other things and people and gods and kings that it's it's worthless. So their faith in Yahweh is just a facade. It's hollow. It's meaningless. How can we tell? Well, there's two pointers in the text. Here's the first one. You can tell your faith is a facade by how moral goodness manifests itself in your life. By how moral goodness manifests itself in your life. There's a contrast in verses 2 and 3 that really deserve careful attention in this text. In fact, I'm tempted to spend all of our time there. It may feel that way by the time we're done that we spend all our time here. But look at the contrast here between verses 2 and 3. Israel cries out to me, oh God, we, we know you, we acknowledge you, but, verse 3, Israel has rejected what is good. And here's the connection, a connection that the prophet is making and one we best not ignore. It's a connection between our theology, what we know about God, and our morality, how we live. A, a connection between acknowledging God and between goodness. The two are connected here. And a lack of moral goodness, a rejection of it, is a sign that something is wrong in your knowledge of God, that you don't know God like you are claiming to. These two things are mixed, mi- mixed together. They're linked. Don't, don't miss this. Their beliefs about God, their knowledge of Him, their reverence for Him, we know you should show up in their moral goodness and how they live. The two things go together. And the Bible makes that connection all the way through the passage. The absence of moral goodness is a sign of aberrant theology. 
Now, we should think about this. We can think about this in a number of ways. In fact, I want to think about it under three headings with you just a minute. We can think about how this concept works its way out in our society, in any society, how it works out personally in someone's life, and then we can think about how it works out covenantally in particular between the people of Israel and God. Now, let's think about this socially for just a moment. A few weeks ago, uh, USA Today ran a story evaluating the Supreme Court and decisions that the Supreme Court, our Supreme Court, has made over the last few years. And the article said that in recent years, the more liberal wing of the court seems to be more influential. That is, they're, they're more influential in how cases are decided. And they said there should have been at some point in time, just by the laws of how things seem to work, there should have been a more conservative turn, a more conservative turn uh, on the court. And they, they said, though, in the article, it hasn't happened. Now, why not? I know that conservatism and moral goodness, political conservatism and moral goodness, they're not the same thing. But, but the, the cases that the article was trying to evaluate was, uh, were, had to do with things like abortion and marriage and other major cultural issues. It is no secret, it is no secret to anyone, it should not be a secret to you, that our culture is changing, it is changing rapidly. We see this explosion of uh, issues related to human sexuality, this explosion of racial tensions. Uh, our, our political discourse is, is coarse, it's angry, it's bitter. All of this, there is all of this turning for moral goodness. And the argument at the heart of this text is that it has not, not, is not related to cultural problems or economic problems. It's not merely a media problem. It is a theological problem. In, in fact, there actually seems to be a concerted effort to remove the theological discussion from any sort of talk about our laws that we have at all. Don't legislate your morality. That's a foolish thing to say. It's impossible. Uh, about 90% of the laws in the books in the United States are moral laws that are enacted into what is do not murder, but a moral choice, moral rule. Alan Dershowitz, he's a Harvard law professor, he's an influential liberal thinker. He wrote a book called Letters to a Young Lawyer. And he wrote in this, In deciding what course of action is moral, you should act as if there were no God. You should also act as if there were no threat of earthly punishment or reward. You should be a person of good character because it is right to be such a person. We don't need the theological. We shouldn't pay attention to the theological. In fact, the theological should be reserved for your pew or in your house. And outside of your church and your house, you should be quiet. Because your theology is harmful. It's hurtful for society. That's so different from what our founders actually were thinking when they started this experiment in republicanism. Uh, our founding fathers, not perfect men and women by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, there was glaring hypocrisy in them. Think about the issue of slavery. But consistently they wrote over and over and over again that if this republic was to survive, it would be because there would be a common core moral commitment. And they found it together in the Judeo-Christian tradition. 
Thomas Jefferson did not believe the Bible, but he went to church very publicly every Sunday of his presidency because he wanted people to know that hearing and heeding what the Bible said was important for the republic to survive. Uh, do you know the, 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 the foundation of, of many of our uh, laws and our American legal tradition come from a book by William Blackstone. I don't know if some of you have heard Blackstone's Commentaries on the Laws of England. It's a fascinating read. Next time you can't sleep, it would be perfect. Um, a few years before the American Revolution, William Blackstone wrote this. Man considered as a creature must necessarily be subject to the laws of his creator, for he is an entirely dependent being. But if there's no creator, there's no dependence, and thus there's no moral goodness. You can see this in the societal level. Theology, knowledge of God, working itself out in moral goodness. And as, and as our society continues to change, what's at the root of it? Hosea says it has to do with our understanding of, or lack thereof, our reverence for God. That's the argument that's made in this text. I think you can also think about this on a, on a personal level here this morning. It doesn't matter to me very much how much you claim to know God and how much you claim to have a relationship with Jesus. If there is an absence of goodness in your life, your claims are hollow. It's a facade. To the extent to which you feel that, that God's commands are holding you back or they're keeping you from doing what you really want to do, that, that these strictures in the Bible about goodness, that, that they're just really cramping your style and they're unpleasant, you are revealing the hollowness of your faith, that there is a facade to the claims that you make. Oh God, we know you. If it's not showing up personally, it's a lie. Some of you recognize it as I'm, I'm talking here. I, I am skirting around the issue. I'm entering into an argument that has been had before. It's the argument over whether or not God is necessary for morality. Hosea 8 connects the two, theology and goodness. They go together. Uh, and, and if we put that template over our society, we, we, the things are falling apart. But personally, when we, when we come to our personal morality, that's another question that, that, that rises from this text. Can you be good without God? Good without God is actually the title of a book by a man by the name of Greg Epstein. Greg Epstein is the first agnostic chaplain of Harvard University. Um, and in his book called Good Without God, he argues that, that any kind of religion is unnecessary. It, maybe it's even harmful to lead a moral life. But there's problems. There's problems with this thesis. I think those problems are insurmountable. Here's two problems. Number one, without God, there are no moral absolutes. There's no moral absolutes. We have no basis for defining what's good behavior. Some argue, they say, no, we should figure it out. We as a society can figure out what's good for us all, and we can together pursue it. But then the question comes, how has that worked over time? Not, not very well. Well, maybe it's because religion just keeps getting in the way, and human beings haven't been freed from their myths and their uh, folk tales, and so they haven't been freed from that to really think together about what's good for all of us. 
But what happens when two groups disagree with each other? What, what almost always happens in defining right and wrong? Almost universally, it's the group that's the most powerful that makes right. Might makes right. Without God, there's no moral absolutes. So far in human history, we haven't been able to improve on his moral absolutes. The second problem, though, of trying to be good without God, of separating the knowledge of God in verse 2 from the practice of goodness in verse 3, is that if, if human beings without, good, without God could agree on some system of morality, there's no motivation for morality without God. There's no motivation for morality. There's, there's no reason to serve humanity. Uh, there's no reason to be good. There's no consequence for it if there is no God. Alan Dershowitz says you should be good because it's the right thing to do. Well, who says? The, the, one of the prevailing worldviews of, of secularism, when we think about how the world is going to end, most uh, secularists believe that someday, billions of years in the future, the sun is going to burn out and the earth is going to freeze and all humanity and every living thing will disappear from existence and that will be at the end. Uh, unless we destroy the world before that with climate change, which is a likely possibility. This is how the world is going to end, though. It's just going to end. It's going to be, in a few billion years, a frozen rock floating through space. Nothing on it. No living anything on it. If, if that's true, there's nothing that's going to really outlast you. Why should you bother to contribute to anybody? Why should you bother to think about the future at all. There's no reason to serve humanity if, if it's all going to end without anyone else to notice it. It's like trying to preserve tissue paper in a rainstorm. It's just going to evaporate. It's just going to melt away. So why are you trying? I know most of you that are here this morning, I know that most of you, uh, many of you are followers of Christ. And, and this theology and goodness connection makes perfect sense to you. If, if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, unapologetically, we believe that the Bible's explanation about God and humanity and goodness and evil and justice and power, we believe that what this book says makes the most sense of the world. And I wonder how what you believe stands up to this explanation of how the world works. So there's, we, we can think about verses 2 and 3 on a societal level. We can think about it on a, on a personal uh, level. And, uh, but there actually is more here that we could talk about. Verse 3, when it uses the word good, the word good, when it's referred to the nation of Israel in particular, has more to do with, with just moral goodness. It includes that, but it also includes this special covenant relationship that Israel has with God. Um, remember, these are God's people. They're God's covenant people. And God is uh, and Hosea is talking about this goodness also in this covenant sense. Goodness is an expression of the, the blessings of God, the fullness, the blessing, that joy, the satisfaction that comes that God promised them. They've rejected the fullness of the relationship with God that they can have. God called them to know him, to love him, to serve him. And, and as a result of that, they would find life and fullness and blessing. And, and they've turned from it. 
The text actually tells us how it fell apart. I wonder, verse 7 seems to indicate that it started small. It says, they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. Now, what does that mean? Their defection from God was slow. It was just a little bit of a gentle breeze. It was just a step here, a compromise there. we're, We're complaining. We're complaining because the weather is cold and gray. It's miserable. It this should not. It's not how May should be, right? But in a month or so, it's going to be 98 with 80% humidity. Okay, and then you'll walk into church. Oh, the weather's so awful. Okay, that's I will, and I will say you're right. It is. It's terrible. Just imagine being outside on one of those days, and when you just get a little bit of a whiff of a breeze, just a little bit. (sighs) These people, the Israelites, making compromises, and they just they just felt. You know, the law is so constraining. What God wants us to do is commands feel so burdensome sometimes. It's just nice to take a step out a little bit and feel a little breeze from that. But where does it lead? Sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. That is, sow the wind, just a little step here, and what will come? That little wind has a very, uh, has has an inevitable uh, opportunity, inevitable tendency to become a tornado. (laughs) Sow the wind, and you get a hurricane. You get a gale back that rips your house off its foundation. It starts very slow. Uh, Verse 12, actually, it's, it's interesting. It helps me think about this more, too. Look what verse 12 says. I wrote for them the many things of my law, but they regarded them as something foreign. Now, what's interesting, I'm not sure where the word many things, where that phrase goes. Does it go with, I think it maybe goes with the verb wrote rather than the law. Your ESV translates it this way. Your ESV says, were I to write my law for them by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. You know what this is like. Every parent in this room, you understand exactly what God is saying here. This is God saying to the people, I have told you 10,000 times to shut the door when you come in the house. Right? Or how many times have I told you to turn your socks right side out before you put them in the laundry? I have told you that 10,000 times. This is God. He is saying, I have written my law. I could have written it for you 10,000 times, and you have not heeded it. You have not paid any attention to it at all. Actually, the people, they, they've twisted it. They, they've twisted what they understand God says. I'll show you that in a minute, but it reminds me of people who, you ever heard somebody say, I have a mind like a steel trap? You do? Yeah, it mangles everything that gets trapped in it. They're confused. They, you know, God's law, they get confused. You see their confusion when it comes to verse 5. It talks about their calf idol. Israel had a long tendency, a long history with calf idols. You remember? Uh, Aaron, uh, Moses is up on the mountain and Aaron made a calf idol. Archaeologists study this area, study ancient Palestine, look at the worship of the Canaanites, and cows and bulls show up frequently in idol worship. And uh, sometimes the, the ancient god Baal, Baal, is pictured riding on a bull with a, with a lightning a bolt in his hand. It's supposed to be a symbol of power. Maybe Aaron and Moses, uh, Aaron, sorry, not Moses, Aaron was building this calf 
And, and they had this expectation that Yahweh was going to sit and ride on it like Baal, like Baal does. I mean, they were just confused. This is, how we, this is how they honor Baal here in this land. Maybe this is how we can honor Yahweh too. Remember, they, they were trying to worship Yahweh. And Moses shows up and he says to them, that is not even close to how God wants to be served. But, but without his word, that's what passes for religious devotion. This is sometimes people in our culture, they talk about God. They say things like, Jesus doesn't care what you believe. He only cares about how you treat people. And you respond by saying, that's not even close to anything that God said. Not even close. This is why, I will remind you this morning, this is why verse 12 is one of the reasons why we take, um, we give ourselves over as a church to serious focused study of the Bible. Because we don't want to be duped. It's the people who knew God's name. They knew God's name. They could say Yahweh. They knew his name. But they were much more familiar with the ways of Baal. We don't want to know Jesus' name. We don't want to be able to sing a few songs about Jesus. But be much more familiar with the ways of Shonda Rhimes or Rush Limbaugh or Taylor Swift. So we read the Bible and we study the Bible. You know, I'm discovering more and more as I read the Bible. <laughs> um, I use a, an app on my phone, version. It helps me keep track of how I read through the Bible. It's very helpful. What I'm discovering more and more is that I have more and more in my mind that I need to be corrected over, that wrong thoughts that I have, errant thoughts about God, insufficient thoughts about God that need to be corrected more and more by the Scriptures. Um, we just have a tendency to make calves that we think will fit Yahweh. Hmm. There, there should be a match. There should be a match between what you claim about God, that we know him, and how you live. The two should go together. And if they don't, something is wrong with your claims. I was, as I was studying this passage, I was thinking about um, I was reminded of something I heard about the marriage of Lyndon and Lady Bird Johnson. Uh, I don't remember if it was on a podcast or an article I read or a radio show. Uh, Lyndon and Lady Bird Johnson had a terrible marriage. Uh, Jose is about marriage. We can talk about that, I guess, now. Uh, Lyndon Johnson was obnoxious. He was distant. He was controlling. He, he would find some woman he thought was more attractive and tell his wife she needed to look more like her. He was just, he was awful. And he was a lecherous man too. He had numerous affairs, dozens and dozens of women. He was, he was so blatant. Sometimes he, he would fondle women in front of his wife. And uh, everyone ignored it. Everyone ignored it. The reason they ignored it is because she ignored it. Never said anything about it. Years after um, uh, he died, she was interviewed. She was interviewed about their marriage. And she said, uh, in response to all these affairs, she said, he loved me. He only loved me, she said. I, I heard that and I thought, now is she trying to convince us or is she trying to convince herself? How, how, how far short, how sad this is, how far short this falls of the Bible's description of one flesh. I, I wonder about all the emotional energy she invested in trying to convince herself that she was his only love. Because he certainly did not demonstrate it by his behavior. 
or how much energy she spent building this wall around her heart. She must have gotten some satisfaction from their relationship that made it worth it. But how much energy did she have to put forth? It's God's plans. It is God's plans that husbands and wives turn toward one another, that they be for each other fully and completely. And the melding of these lives together is very difficult. It's hard sometimes. You may have, like the Israelites, we know you, God. You may have the certificate and you may have the rings and you may have the program from the vows that were made so long ago. But if it's not manifest in your life, in your turning to one another consistently, more and more and more, you give a lie to those vows that you made. That's what's happening here in the nation of Israel. This distance between what you claim and how you live in a society uh, will crumble. In a personal relationship, it will make you a double-minded man. In, in a relationship, it, if there is no theological knowledge of God, if there's no acknowledgement of God, goodness will evaporate like puddles in the sunshine. Now here's sign number two. Sign number two in the text, that faith is a facade. Um, obviously, less time and more text we must have this morning. Second, you can tell by how, where you turn in trouble. You can tell that faith is a facade by the lack of moral goodness in your life, number one. Secondly, you can tell by where you turn in trouble. The Israelites here turned to political and spiritual resources that were supposed to save them. Uh, They're mentioned in verse 4. Look what it says. Verse 4 says, They have set up kings without my consent. They chose princes without my approval. With With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. Let's talk about kings for a minute. The Israelites had a lot of problems with kings. They always wanted a king for themselves. Starting in the book of Judges, they came to Gideon and said, Will you be king? He said, No, I will not be king. And then in the book of Samuel, they come to Samuel the prophet and they say, you, we, want, we want a king. We want you to appoint us a king. And Samuel was discouraged about it. He went to God. He said, God, they want a king. And God said, Samuel, don't be discouraged. They're not rejecting you. They're actually rejecting me. The people of Israel are in trouble here. Maybe they're under a threat from a foreign power. So they don't think about God. They don't turn to God. They don't have any recourse to God. They don't consult God. They find some king and put him on the throne. Not just their own kings, they look to other nations, other kings too. Look at verse 9. It says, they have gone up to Assyria. They want the Assyrians to protect them. Like a wild donkey wandering alone. Wild donkeys are lonely and dull. Dull is a nice word. They're foolish. They're stupid. They've gone up to Assyria. Ephraim, another name for Israel, sold themselves to to lovers. They turn to kings and they turn to false gods. False gods that they worshipped everywhere. Verse 11 talks about their many altars. They have altars everywhere, but they were not altars that God recognized. They were only places for sin and more sin and more sin. Verse 13 is very odd, I think. Remember, God's been speaking in the first person. Though they offer sacrifices and gifts to me, and though they eat the meat... Now he talks in the third person. The Lord is not pleased with them. Now he will remember their wickedness and punish their sins. Why does he switch there? One commentator thinks 
that God here is making fun of or twisting uh, a priestly decoration. You would come and bring your offering to the altar, and when the offering was done, the priest would stand and say, the Lord is pleased with your offering. He will not remember your wickedness anymore, and he will forgive your sins. And in response to that, God says, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. No, the Lord is not pleased with your offering. He will not forget your wickedness, and he will punish you for your sin." Maybe verse 14 tells us they're not just trusting in kings and false gods. Maybe they're trusting in their palaces and their fortified towns too. We're thinking about where you turn in times of trouble. This is a basic element in idolatry. We are meant, God has made us to be worshiping, trusting, dependent creatures. We are made to orient ourselves around him. This is the basic human design. It's in keeping with how God made us. We're doing some, a few projects around our house. And one of the things we decided to do was we wanted to replace the doorknobs on one of our closets. So, uh, just a real simple design. My wife went to, the, to Lowe's and she bought, came home with one. She was very happy with it. It looked good. And um, we, we put it on the closet and we discovered that the bolt that you're supposed to screw into the handle from the other side was too long. So that it was, the doorknob was kind of floppy there on the door. So what are we going to do? Well, I uh, decided that if we went and bought a couple nuts... We could put them on the bolt, and then it would, it would take up more space, and it would be tight. It was a great idea. So I went and took the bolt that we had, and I went to Lowe's, and I went to the aisle, and I found the packages of the nuts, and I eyed them up just to find the right size in the package, and I bought the nuts. You can't buy them just one or two at a time. So I bought a whole bag of them, and I came out and, and went home and discovered that. The, why did I go home? Why didn't I do this in the parking lot? I know that's what you're thinking. This is why you don't ask me home repair questions. But anyway, I got home, and I it's not the right size. My ability to eye up the size of a nut with a bolt is not very good. So I went back to Lowe's, and I walked back into the aisle where they have all the nuts and bolts that are there. And lo and behold, I discovered they have this huge board, and on it are all these nuts there. And you can take the bolt you have, and you can screw it onto the nuts that are there and find the right size. It's amazing. I was walking in the aisle and I found that they even have the reverse. They have a bunch of bolts on a board so you can screw your nuts. It was great. Well, I found the right one and brought it home. There's a whole aisle in Lowe's that is a testament to the fact that things are made for each other. Nuts and bolts are made for each other. They are sized appropriately for one another and they match your life too. You as a human being, there are marks in your life that indicate that you are made for another. You are made for God. We are clearly made to build our lives around, to trust and to treasure another. The problem comes that we try to find our hope, our assurance, the strength that we are to live outside of God, apart from Him. Where do you turn when you have trouble? What do you do? Who rescues you from a bad day? Who makes you feel attractive or powerful or safe? Everyone is looking for a savior. Last night I was reading uh, before bed Psalm 52. Listen to what part of Psalm 52 says. It's about the, the wicked who have made themselves rich 
And, and Psalm 52 verse 5 says, Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and pluck you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see this in fear. They will laugh at you saying, listen, here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. You are a fool if you are trusting in wealth for your security and your safety and your happiness in life. The consequences for trusting and turning to other things are all the way through chapter 8 here of this passage. Verse 5, it says, my anger burns against them. Verse 7, you'll reap the whirlwind. Verse 10, God will gather them together. Um, gathering together in the Bible usually in the Old Testament usually means God's going to gather people together and bless them. Here he's going to gather them together and judge them. They're going to waste away. Verse 14, there is fire. This is very different from the goodness that God intended to give to his people. I, I have a basic assumption about most of you that are here this morning. Maybe it's a foolish assumption, but it's my basic assumption. I imagine that most of you here this morning know some basic facts about God. That, that you know a few of the stories in this book, that you have Jesus' name on your tongue every now and then. A, a few years of VBS under your belt. Maybe you know just enough to be dangerous. Enough that you feel pretty confident that, that you can build your own life, that you can put a few things together of your life. And, and you have, but be very careful. Hosea 8 does not inspire confidence about your ability to put your life together. In fact, it should make you lay down your great confidence. To set aside the plan that, that you have put together. There is only one person who is worthy of that level of trust. There is only one king to whom we can turn. This text, Assyria, was the king they turned to. And the king of Assyria was the one who came and crushed them. Oh, but the Bible tells us about a king whose name is the Lord Jesus Christ that we turn to. And he does not crush us. In fact, he was crushed for us. He's the only one. He's the only one who is worthy of your trust. He's the only one that you can look to truly for resting. God wasn't pleased with the Israelites, but in every single way, God has been pleased with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his life and his death for our sins. Rescue comes, it only comes from trusting in him, from orienting yourself to him. That's what he meant when he said, believe in me. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we come before you this morning and this text, though it was meant to condemn the Israelites, it condemns us as well because we are the people who have about us the marks that you have put that we are to turn for salvation, for rescue, that we are trusting, dependent, worshiping creatures. And Lord, we confess we have within us these tendencies over and over again. We turn to worthless things. We turn to empty things. We turn to good things that you have given us that can't satisfy eternally. We are people who love money and power and pleasure 
we, we love ourselves. Oh, this text condemns us. Father, it is, we, we come before you and ask for your mercy because this is a place where it is easy to build our facade. We fool one another how easily we can by speaking Jesus' name and singing the songs and putting a few dollars in the offering plate and, and, and we advertise the facade. And yet there, there can be such great hollowness. Oh God, preserve us from this. Protect our children from thinking that because they sang in the children's choir or they got awards in Awana or they successfully finished Sunday school that, that they can then go and build their own lives because they have the skills to do it. Preserve them, protect them from that, we pray. God, we come before you and we pray these things because you are merciful and your steadfast love is rescuing, oh, rescue us from this idols, these idols that we turn to. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.